any time that we build our values or our worldview or our thinking on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, we are unstable. I think stability comes from being grounded in God's word, being grounded in Christ, being grounded in the gospel. Unfortunately, I think today there are many who claim to follow Jesus Christ and they have as their foundation many things which are not biblical. They have a lot of isms and they have a lot of cultural ideas. They have a lot of popular ideas, popular Christian ideas, and they build their their house or they build their framework the way that they think on scriptural principles, and other things. And I was thinking this past week about that parable that Jesus gave as he talked about the the two men who, after listening to Jesus, you know, you're left with two responses. Either you listen to Jesus and you build your house on the rock, or you don't and you build your house on shifting sand. And I thought, it's possible for some of us to build most of the house on the rock, but have some of the house on shifting sand. And guess what? It's still on shifting sand. When there is a storm that comes, that part that is on the sand will come out and will, will fall apart. And I must admit, as I, as I think about the time that I spend in my office studying the word and as I, as I spend time with the Lord, there is, a lot of my time is saying, oh, that's not a good thought. That's not a good thing. I need to change that with scripture, right? There's many times that my thoughts are opposite of scripture and the response is for me to confess those things uh, to borrow that analogy of a house I must demolish that part and make sure that I have a firm foundation and I think today uh, the world around us is very unstable for us as Americans but I think that the Bible would expect a believer to be stable and the question is what does it mean to be stable in times when things are unstable And this morning, in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 11, verse 31, all the way to chapter 12, verse 6, we're going to have a portrait of what does it mean to be stable in the midst of unstable times. And so in this section, first, what we're going to see from uh, Proverbs 11 through 31 to 12, 3, we're going to see that stability for us as believers is a combination of obedience and repentance, we're going to be obedient, and we're going to be repentant. We're going to be penitent. This, this is the mark of a stable person. I think another thing that we're going to have when we have uh, stability, what we're going to see in verse 4, is strong families. Families that are not necessarily built on just blood, but are built upon Jesus Christ and his word, and a strong character. And then lastly, <laughs> we're going to have wise rhetoric. A, a stable person is one who speaks with wisdom. Not, not just worldly wisdom, or not that we've read Aristotle or Socrates and we're able to quote them or quote the novel, uh, you know, 1984, but that our wisdom actually comes from Christ. That we kind of have this idea that unless I'm taught from Christ, I'm not really taught at all. So there's this idea that, that stability comes from building upon Christ and upon his word because these things do not move. These things help ground us. And when there's problems around us, these things deepen us. So let's look at this. So first, 
let's look at this obedience and repentance. So go with me to Proverbs 11, verse 31. And notice what Solomon says here. He says, If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinners. Kind of an interesting phrase. Here, the idea for the person who's righteous, if the righteous, as we've talked through the book of Proverbs, a righteous person is that who appropriately responds to God's word and to God's will. So it's an appropriate response in every situation to what God says and God's will for us. And so that's what a righteous person is here. We talked about how a righteous person has righteousness based upon the imputed righteousness that's given to us at the moment we place our faith in Christ. So when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I am declared righteous, given the righteousness of Christ. And from that, and from the indwelling Holy Spirit, flows righteous actions. Of course, this is a product of the Holy Spirit, but I think, I, I think it's important for us to also remember that there is human responsibility. You are to be obedient, and if you are disobedient, and the Lord, as a gracious Father, disciplines you, you should receive that discipline correctly. But I don't want to get ahead of myself, so we'll just leave it at that. Righteousness flows from that righteousness which is imputed and from the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then it says, will be rewarded. Interesting word choice. Many of the Hebrew scholars, when they're looking at this phrase, says that this word reward is probably better translated recompense. One translation said, we'll get what he deserves. That's probably a better translation here. So the idea here is that when a righteous person does something, and then notice that little tag, in the earth. So this is talking about an earthly reality of something that will happen here. The principle is when a righteous person does something, and there is from that thing that they do, the natural consequence of that, it is deserved. So if a righteous person does something that's good, there is a good response from the Lord. There will be favor from the Lord. We'll talk about that in verse 2. That's a response. If, we, if a righteous person does what's bad, and he is disciplined from his heavenly Father, that is the natural consequence. And so there's an idea here of you are responsible for your own decisions, and the natural consequences of those decisions... It's kind of what you deserve. That's kind of the sense you get here. And, and I, I think it's really interesting that he says, in the earth. Th- th- this is kind of, in one sense, if we were to frame this, yes, we can think of God's grace. Yes, we can think of God's mercy. Yes, we should think of God's forgiveness. But as a principle, it is when you do something, there is a consequence. When you are obedient, there's a consequence. When you are disobedient, there's a consequence. And each person is judged based off of what they do. It's not necessarily a collective, right? Like, like it's not because this church has a whole bunch of people doing righteous stuff, and you just happen to come here. Then you, then all the stuff you do kind of gets washed under the rug. Like, well, you're with them, so obviously there's some like righteousness that that you, you breathed in while you're here, so there's contact righteousness, right? That's not, that's not the way that this works. It's that each person is responsible for their own actions, and the consequences of those are justly deserved. 
So if it's true for the righteous, that if a righteous person does what is right, there's, there, there will be, he'll get his, his due. Or if he does what's wrong, he'll, the natural consequence will happen. So if it's true for the righteous, notice the next part of what Solomon says. He says, how much more the wicked and the sinner. So if it's true for the righteous person, then isn't it true for the wicked person as well? That the consequences of their actions will play out and those, those consequences are fair, right? That's the principle. You do what's right, that's good. You do what's wrong, and there's a little bit of discipline, you kind of deserve that discipline. Now, I think Solomon has a particular thing in mind, and I think that's found in the next verse in 12.1. Because notice what he says here. He says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. So, think of this. The immediate implication that should come to your mind when you see verse 1 is, you're still a sinner, and that you are still going to sin. Righteous people, you are righteous because you are declared righteous. You are becoming more righteous as you are reading the word and as you're spending time with Jesus, as you're saying yes to what is right and no to what is wrong, as you're yielding to the power of the Spirit. Yes, you're becoming more righteous, and relatively speaking, there are people who are more righteous than others. But that does not negate the fact that there is still decisions that we make that go against God's word and against his character, which is sin. There is still the reality of sin even in our life. We still are sinners. As much as I would love to be perfect and not have to sin and not have to spend half of my time with the Lord saying, I'm really sorry for this, I'm really sorry for that, and that other thing I did, I'm really sorry for that, and I'm sorry for this. As much as I would love just to spend time with the Lord just talking about his attributes, there is this reality of my sin, and there is this constant repentance in my life. And so should be yours. And notice that it says, whoever loves discipline... We know that there's a universal truth that every time that there is sin, there is conviction of sin, right? From believers and non-believers. However, believers respond differently to that conviction of sin than non-believers. And here, I think you kind of see the difference in reaction. So when I'm convicted of sin, when, I, when I'm told that I'm doing something wrong... And, and th- this comes from God's word, right? When God's word tells me I do something wrong, I either can love that discipline, love that rebuke, or I can reject it and hate it. The question is, what does it mean to love discipline? Well, I think the Bible has a lot to say. We could spend a lot of time going through what does it mean to love discipline. But let me just give you a short answer here. I think, first of all, to love discipline realizes the source of this discipline. As a believer, when I do something that's wrong, I am a child of my heavenly fathers. And he treats me like a son. And he disciplines me like a father disciplines his child. I'm never getting kicked out of the family. But that thing that I did has to be dealt with. And so much like parents deal with their children, God deals with us. He deals with us through, as we read the Bible, there's conviction of sin. He deals with us that if we are still unrepentant, there might be other believers that come by and tell us, hey, I've noticed something in your life that's not very good, that's not like Christ. 
and they lovingly encourage you to live like Christ. Uh, part of this discipline is through the preaching of the word, what you're doing now. And, and as you listen to the word being taught and as, as you're listening to the explanation of some of these words and, and that moment of, uh-oh, uh-oh, I, that's bad. I'm, I'm doing the very thing he says I should not be doing. That is, that is the Lord working through the power of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin, pricking our conscience. So that when, when I realize the source, that it's from a loving father, I then realize that this is not like how some think of that God is like this judge, and once you do something wrong, he like, you're out, no longer allowed in the building. You're, you're completely done. No, he's working with us to shape us to be more like Christ. So the source is a loving father. I realize the end, that he's making me more like Christ. And, and as I look at this, my sin, I realize that I am in the wrong. I take responsibility for it. I say, I'm sorry and I'm wrong. I ask for forgiveness of the Lord. Then I believe he forgives me. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And then I am obedient. That is the process of repentance. That is, that's what it means to love that discipline, to receive it, to submit to it, to say, you are right, I am in the wrong, I'm going to align myself with you. And notice that the person who loves discipline also loves knowledge. Now, knowledge in the book of Proverbs does deal with what I know. It does deal with content, but it's not simply just content. It's not that we can take a test and know the meanings of things. This knowledge would speak more of knowledge of God and knowledge of who he is, knowledge of his attributes, of his perfections, and of his way. So think of this. The person who is convicted by sin, repents, and moves closer to the Lord and submits to the Lord demonstrates that they love knowing the Lord. They want that closer relationship with the Lord. You want to be stable? You want to have stability? Repent. Have a life full of repentance. There should never be a time as a believer that we say, well, I think I've repented of everything I've done wrong. That's never happened to me. You're probably better than me. I I don't think that'll ever happen to you, by the way. There, There needs to be this constant state of repentance this constant state of looking at God's word, seeing what God's word has to say, and saying, I'm not like Christ yet. I'm moving towards Christ's likeness. And as the Lord convicts us of sin, we need to take that conviction seriously. Because to love that discipline means that I'm growing closer in my relationship with the Lord. Now, with that in mind, then notice the antithesis in the next part of the verse. He says, but he who hates reproof So think of this, someone who who goes to the word of God, hears the rebuke of the word of God, and says, how dare you tell me how to live my life? First of all, just think about how ridiculous that is, that a mere creature can say to an all-knowing, all-powerful creator who knows everything about us, more than we know about ourselves, is the way of salvation, to look at that one and go, how dare you? Tell me what to do. 
And that's why I think the word stupid is a good translation here. Just think about the, the image that this creates. A creature going to the creator and telling the creator what, telling him about his creation. It is absolutely foolish. It, it is the epitome of foolishness. But that's essentially what happens when people receive the conviction of God's word and then say, how dare God tell me how to live? And to then reject that and live the other way. Instead of submitting to it and saying, God, you're right. What you say is sin is sin. I've committed that sin. Instead, what they're doing is you're changing the definition of sin. And you're saying, that thing that I did, which you call sin, I call okay. That is not a stable person. Right? And here, it's not an intelligent person. It's just not looking at the facts and the reality of things. Now notice the next verse in verse 2. It says, A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. So here you have the idea of a good man. Uh, the idea of good is, is he does what is good. Uh, he, he plans things that are according to God's word, according to Christ. So a good man, uh, one who, who does these things, who's striving to be obedient, will obtain favor from God. So the one who's obedient to God, who submits himself to God's word and acts in a way that's obedient, God will be pleased with him. Now, as we've talked about in the book of Proverbs, and just as way of reminder, we realize that we are given, that we are saved by grace, and that God is very gracious, and that God is favorable towards us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his own character. That's the definition of grace. We're saved by grace. Jesus came down and died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And anyone who places their faith on Jesus Christ shall be saved. I don't do a thing in that process. That is all the Lord's working and his grace. The Lord, out of his graciousness, intervened in my life, worked in my life, changed my heart, so then I would then place my faith in Christ. That is all grace. I do not think that this verse is saying something opposite than that. What I think is what's being talked about here is after someone has received the grace of God, they're in the family. From that grace, a person is supposed to be obedient. And when they are obedient, God is happy. When they are disobedient, God is not happy. So I use the illustration, and I still think it's a, a good illustration. I used it a couple months back. Uh, but I, I remember when I was in Bible college, I received a scholarship uh, for one of my semesters. It was for uh, uh, the, one of the, the students who was going to go into the ministry as a, as a pastor, and it was a special, special scholarship. I received that scholarship, and the school decided to give me that scholarship, and there was really nothing I could have done to remove that scholarship, Right? But as I left school and then I went into the ministry and started preaching, they were happy that they gave me the scholarship because I was following through with the scholarship. So the scholarship was given to me by grace, but I still pleased the people who gave me the scholarship because I'm in the ministry now. And I think that's a really good example of how we think about the grace of God. I'm saved by grace. But when I am obedient, God is happy that he was gracious towards me and I'm being obedient. 
And as I'm being obedient, guess who's getting the real glory for this? The Lord, right? What did Jesus say? Let your light shine before men so that when they see it, they give glory to who? The Father who's in heaven. So when we think then of this obedience as a believer, a good man is pleasing to the Lord. The Lord is happy when believers are obedient. He's happy. But notice what it says. He condemns a man who devises evil. Now, if you think back up to verse 31, this is very true, right? Each person in this room is responsible for his or her own action. If you do something that's bad, there will be conviction of sin, right? There will be natural consequences from that sin. That's fair. If you do what's right and you're obedient and, you, and God is happy with you and there's consequences from that obedience... That's the way this works, okay? Now, remember, Proverbs are not hard, fast promises. I'm sure that we could look at scenarios of people who were very obedient to the Lord, and they ended up being martyred for their faith. And you would say, well, that doesn't seem to bear out the principle here. Of course, we can find examples. But the idea is, all things being equal, the principle is, you do what is right, and there are good consequences, you do what is wrong, and there are negative consequences. Now, there are some who, interestingly, ignore this advice. And notice what Solomon says in the next verse, in verse 3. He says, a man will not be established by wickedness. You see that? Stability will not come through wickedness. Now, when it says that a man will be established... I think this term is so ambiguous here. He doesn't really define what he means by established, that it means all of the above, meaning that his life will be established, that he'll have maturity, that he'll be being obedient, his reactions will be wise and discerned, his actions will also have wisdom, and I think it also includes the fact that he will stand before the Lord, that he will go to heaven, right? Kind of like that that image in psalm 1 let's just simply go to psalm 1 we're going to flip back and forth from psalm 1 to this to this verse so just keep your finger here and in proverbs but just think of of the psalmist here in psalm 1 how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates day and night he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish." So this, this particular proverb we're looking at, it's kind of inverted, right? So just notice verse 4, how the wicked are not like the righteous. The righteous are, they're marked by their stability, by their growth. They're marked by this deep roots. The wicked are not. And notice, they are like chaff. This is the stuff that's left over when, in the process of getting grain, uh, from from the stalks and as they beat it out there's all this extra stuff that's left over and 
they just simply just left it out and the wind would drive it away. It was just easily blown away. That there's nothing that keeps them. There's, not, there's nothing that stabilizes them. And, and this driving away is then, notice in verse 5, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Essentially, this is referring to that time in, in the afterlife. I believe that's what he's talking about here, is the afterlife. They will not stand in the judgment. They will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. Uh, essentially, they will not go to the good place. They'll end up in the bad place, right? That's essentially what, the, what, what he's saying. And so the, you, you see this lack of stability as a mark of the wicked. Paul, when he talks about uh, maturity and those who are grounded in Christ, he talks about those who are steadfast and not blown by every wind of doctrine. If you know a wicked person, they are constantly having new ideas and new thoughts, and they're constantly moving from this to that to this to that. There's no stability. There's no, there's no long-term thoughts because they can't find the answers. Uh, you think about their lifestyle, it constantly blowing here and there. Nothing, nothing of real value or substance is produced by these people. In fact, a wicked person, what's left behind a wicked person is nothing but pain and destruction. And when we think about the eternal state, they will not be in the right relationship with the Lord and they will not be in heaven. And so this lack of stability is all of the above. So when it says that you cannot establish yourself through wickedness, that is the case. You cannot continually be wicked and continually being disobedient to the Lord and think that you're actually going to build something that's worth something. That's not the case. Now think about the, the, the inverse here in verse 3. It says, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. So the wicked, they're moved. There's nothing tying them down. There, there's no staying power, right, with the wicked. They're going to they're gonna flee. But with the righteous, there's roots. And, and just think of that passage in Psalm 1. Just think of the first, in verse, uh, in, in verse 2 of Psalm 1. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. By the way, I... I, I really wish that I, I could do verse 2 more than I do now. I, I really wish I could delight in the scriptures more than I delight now. And, and I really wish that I could really all the time just be meditating and meditating because the greatest joy for me is to be thinking about God and his word. I, I strive to have this more and more. But the one who meditates on God's law and delights in God and in his word, notice, this one will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Think about a strong tree. And when winds blow and there's rainstorms and there's ice storms and there's snowstorms, a strong tree with deep roots, what? Lasts. It's able to handle those difficult times. And it's able to continue to produce Think about a weak tree or a dying tree. What happens to a weak tree or a dying tree in a windstorm? Well, it falls over, knocks over power lines, falls into people's houses, knocks over, falls into people's cars, right? It's complete, total chaos, right? Later on, when those trees are falling down in the forest, those become, what, 
fuel for forest fires. So there's nothing good from a dying tree. But just think about that steadfast tree that's able to stand, withstand all of that stuff, and it remains. That's a person who's rooted in the scriptures, rooted in Christ. And, And then notice, he's this tree's by streams of water. There's a constant nourishment to this tree. This tree is constantly getting fed, so it's constantly getting stronger. And because of its strength and its deepening strength, it then is able to yield its fruit in its season. It's able to be productive. And as it's able to be productive, notice that its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Why the prosperity? Because he's following the will of God. Remember, prosperity is being Christ-like. That is the goal for us as believers, to strive to be like Christ. So when I look at this thing in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 3, when it talks about the root of the righteous will not be moved, it is this idea that here is this believer who is rooting himself in Christ, in the word, and as he's rooting himself in Christ, as he's appropriately responding to God's word, there is this deepening, and there's this strengthening, and there's stability. Now, that's the first thing, a first snapshot of stability. Notice the next is this establishing of a strong family. Verse 4. It says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness, is like rottenness, to his bones. It's kind of a funny saying here in verse 4. Um, Israelites have a really interesting way of poetry in describing women, don't they? If you think of the book of Song of Solomon as Solomon describes his wife, I guarantee you if I said half of those things to my wife, she would hand me my jaw back to me. Um, if I told her, "Hun, your hair looks like goat's hair. That would not be received in the spirit it was given. I guarantee you that. So they had an interesting way of describing beauty. Here, this is an interesting way. The word really means manly strength. So uh, a manly strength wife. The question is, what does he mean here by that? The idea is of strong character. That's really what the idea here is of an excellent wife. Someone, a, a woman who has a strong character character. But, but I think it goes a lot deeper than just a strong character. I, th- I think it's the idea that a strong character and she is competent in fulfilling God's will for her life, right? So it's this strong, competent woman who is biblical and Christ-like. That's what an excellent wife is. By the way, this word for excellent is also used to describe Ruth in Ruth chapter 3. This is also going to be used later on in Proverbs 31 in talking about the excellent woman. So, we will, we will talk more about that when we get to Proverbs 31. However, just notice that here the ideas of strong moral character, someone that is stable, and I couldn't help, and we can't help, but think of verse 3, right, of this idea of the root of the righteous will not be moved, And then in thinking of that root of the righteous that will not be moved, then here is this woman who's a wife who also is godly and righteous 
And so if the root of the righteous will not move and she is righteous, then she is strong. Notice how Solomon describes this righteous wife. This woman is a crown to her husband. Now, this image of a crown is a really interesting one. Um, Because when I think of a crown, I think of a couple things. I think first of something that is beautiful, right? Crowns are always beautiful. They're, They're always something worth protecting, right? And there's always that idea of he who wears the crown is the king right? So there's this idea of ruling. It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, image here, and, and I think this is a great description of, of a godly wife, and husbands, we should be very thankful for our godly wives. I'm very thankful for my godly wife, who many times lovingly rebukes me when I am in error, and who I have for no, no clue of, and I haven't done anything. It's a gift from the Lord, but she follows me everywhere, and I don't know what I've done to deserve that. So, I'm very thankful for godly wives, especially mine. And so when I think of my own wife, Krista, and I think about this idea of a crown, it's one, she is attractive. And since the crown is on the husband's head, she makes all of you like me more. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big job. That's a huge job. She should deserve a raise, yeah. Um, But that's the idea of adornment, right? There's another thing, that a crown is something that's worth protecting. I I should be wanting to protect my wife. She is valuable to me, and I want to protect her. I don't want any harm to come to her. But there's then also this idea of she empowers me to rule, right? There's this sense that a that a, that a woman of, of, of strong moral character who is following God's word is, makes her husband more attractive and does not get in his way of the leadership of the house as God has designed it. She's willingly submitting and she helps him as he does the things that he's supposed to be doing. This is a perfect picture of, uh, of a wife, of a helpmate to a husband who is helping her husband accomplish God's will. That's the idea here. Beautiful picture. And think about a household that has this, where you have righteous people who are striving to live for the Lord, coming together, living in the same house. Think about the stability that happens. There's a lot of stuff that Chris and I have not had to go through that we've had some other friends that we watched that they had to go through. And we haven't had to go through that because we're striving to live for the Lord. And so there's that constant state of, well, I need to be obedient, but I also am a sinner and need a lot of repentance. So that obviously then means that there's a lot of asking of forgiveness for each of us. There's a lot of stuff that we're able to course correct while it's still a small issue and deal with it. Now, a a wife of strong character is a crown to her husband. The opposite is true. Notice, but she who shames him is like rottenness to his bone. Uh, so so if, if a woman of character who's striving to live for the word or for the Lord is, is, helps her husband and, and, and is, is something beautiful, then this is something that's ugly. And here's a woman who desires not to live for the Lord, who rejects the commands of the Lord. And what, what ends up happening? 
It's killing her husband on the inside. That's really the image here, right? When a bones rot, it's the killing of the husband on the inside. Now, let's also be honest here. I don't think that it's just wives who, when they act foolishly, hurt their husbands. And husbands, we can act foolishly all we want, and that doesn't hurt our our wives. I don't think that's the case. It's obvious that any time any of us act foolishly, we hurt others. And there's pain, and there's destruction, and, and there's... There's a lot of stuff that has to be worked through, right? So anytime that there's foolishness and sin in a marriage, that hurts the marriage. And that, that threatens the stability of that marriage and of that home. And it is obviously the opposite. If you're striving to live for the Lord and you're striving to, to, to be righteous and be obedient, then there's going to be a strengthening of that marriage, right? That just would make sense. So what is a stable person look like in this unstable times? Strong marriages where people are striving to be like Christ. That is stability in a time that's unstable, isn't it? Now, there's one last thing. Notice in verse 5 and 6, it says, the thoughts of the righteous are just. The word for thoughts here are not just, he thought, I think about something, therefore, it's whatever I happen to be thinking about. The word thoughts is probably better translated as uh, design, as planning, as uh, objectives, right? So uh, when a righteous person plans as as he has objectives, there may even be an aspect of of giving counsel to others, right? So it's not only for my own life that I'm able to look and and plan and and plan the course of my life according to God's word and it's appropriate, but that I'm also able to help others as they're going through life, help them steer and give advice, so the advice of the, of the righteous, the thought of the righteous, the, the thoughts themselves are just, meaning that they have good judgment, that they're discerning. And I thought a lot this week about what, what does that look like for a believer to have just thoughts and thoughts that are full of discernment? And we got to go back to Christ. Uh, the, the best Example, I know of justice and of having the right judgment is Jesus Christ himself. And so I should be thinking the same way he thinks. And the question is, how does he think? What kind of attitudes did he have? Well, there's, there's lots of them. But one just came to my mind um, that I was thinking about uh, was in Philippians chapter 3. Just think of this in Philippians chapter 3. Or, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And notice, notice what the apostle says. He says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal needs, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So you think of this. Here, the Apostle Paul tells us to have the same attitude, the same type of judgment that Christ has. And what is that? 
Well, verse 3, it says, do nothing from selfishness. So a mind that thinks like Christ, that is thinking justly, is not thinking of my own benefit. I'm not thinking selfishly, right? And then notice what else it is. It's not from empty conceit. I'm not narcissistic. So what am I? Well, I'm humble in mind, so there's humility, and I'm regarding others as more important than myself, right? This is how a Christian should think. You're more important than me. And then verse 4 is an important thing to say because it's important. He says, not merely looking for your own interests, meaning it's not wrong to look at your own interests. It's not wrong to fulfill your own needs, right? We all have interests and needs. There's nothing wrong with that. But it seems that we enter into sin when we are merely looking out for our own interests and not the interests of others. You see? So it's not wrong for me wanting to have a job to provide for my family. It's nothing wrong with me having interests in business and, and, and doing well in business. There's, that's not sin. It's a sin when that is the only thing you're concerned about. And you're not considering the other. You're not, with humility, looking at others. By the way, this, would, this is what justice would look like in the mind of a believer. That's how Christ made decisions. That's how the Lord makes decisions. That's how we should make decisions. But back to Proverbs chapter 12. Notice, notice what else he says. He says, but the counsel of the wicked are deceitful. So the counsels themselves, the advice that the wicked give, they themselves are deceitful. And the idea you get is that the advice may seem good in the moment, but they ultimately lead to demise. In fact, I think that's kind of what verse 6 kind of says. Notice he says, and the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. So there's this idea that the words of the wicked wait in ambush to ambush and bushwhack the person who spoke them, right? The, the idea is that those words will come back to bite them. And even when they give counsel to others, it may seem good in the moment, but it ultimately leads to death and destruction. Why? Because it's not founded in Christ and in his word. And if you look at then the opposite in verse 6, but the mouth of the upright, it will deliver them, meaning that the upright, those who are, their, their firm foundation is in the word and in Christ, they will say things that lead people towards the Lord, and they will say things that are according to God's law, and they will not have to suffer the same consequences as those foolish people who ran their mouth. That's, that's stability in our rhetoric. And we need to have wise rhetoric as we talk. Uh, we, we need to be ones who, who say things from discernment and from wisdom that are found in God's word that promotes and points people to Jesus Christ. So, stability in unstable times. What does that look like for us? Well, it looks like obedience and repentance. It looks like building strong family units based upon Christ and his word. It looks like believers speaking biblical words with biblical definitions. It looks like believers pointing people to Jesus and not away. And I, and I let me just say this. I, I am not known for my handyman skills. In fact, if you ask any of the deacons about any of the projects I've tried to accomplish at the parsonage, I think they would say, 
we think Caleb knows the right way how to hold a hammer. That's about the extent of the skill that I think they would, they would give me and they would grant me. Um, but I have, I have worked as a handyman, well, with a handyman. I, didn't, well, I wasn't a handyman. I worked with a handyman, and I worked at Home Depot for numerous years and know nothing really about home improvement anyways. But I have learned a couple things in this, and I, to some of you who are quite more handy than myself, you will probably wholeheartedly agree. But I, I do know this, that a house that is ugly on the outside doesn't necessarily mean that it has a bad foundation and that the studs are not laid right, and that it's not, it doesn't have strong insides. And just because a house is beautiful on the outside doesn't necessarily mean that it has, it's built on a firm foundation and that the insides are correct. In fact, I grew up in Wyoming. I was often amazed at the houses that survived tornadoes and the houses that did not survive tornadoes. There were certain houses that you thought, that will last an atomic bomb. You blow on it and it falls over. There's another house that you're like, I don't even know. Do they keep that together by duct tape? Is that how that holds on? And the house is able to handle a full-blown, uh, full-blown tornado. And when you go to then expect why some houses stand when, when there's these environmental pressures on it and there's winds, when you go back and you look at it, it's not the color of the cabinets, it's not the color of the carpets that really makes a house. It's that it's built on a firm foundation. And because it's built on a firm foundation, it's able to withstand. Now, that doesn't mean that an ugly house still isn't an ugly house. It can be built on a firm foundation and still have ugly carpet. And we as believers, we have a lot of ugly things about us that need to be renovated, right? That is very true. But know this, that we should be focused on building our foundation on the Word and on Christ because that's what gives us stability and strength in the midst of times where things are not stable. That is where we go. We strengthen ourselves in the word and in Christ, seeking to only build our life upon these things because anything else, any other ism, any other thought, any other worldview that comes inside will cause our lives to be unstable. And when times and pressures and storms come, the foundation will break apart. It has to be built. It must be built on the scriptures and it must be built on Christ. That is stability. So may the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's... uh,